everyone. Welcome to Dig Deep. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey tells the story of a meal he once shared with two scientists who had just emerged from a glass-enclosed biosphere outside of Tucson, Arizona, as part of a two-year isolation experiment. These two scientists were part of a group of eight scientists, four men and four women. All these individuals were very accomplished in their field. They had all undergone psychological testing and lots of preparation. They had been briefed on the rigors they would face while sealed off from the outside world. And they had all volunteered to be a part of this two-year isolation experiment. And over the meal that they shared together, the two scientists told Yancey that within a matter of months, the eight of them had split into two groups of four. And things got so bad between the two groups that for the last few months of the two-year experiment, the two groups refused to even speak to each other. And Yancey summarizes it this way. He says, eight people lived in a bubble split in half by an invisible wall of ungrace. And I tried to imagine what I would feel like if I was on the outside of that biodome looking in at those poor eight scientists. And I imagine I'd think something like, really, you guys? I mean, there's only eight of you in there, and you only have to put up with each other for two years, and somehow you are so mad at each other that you won't even speak to each other. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but for each one of us, looking in on someone else's bubble, someone else's sphere of relationships... It's easy, or at least easier, to see the way forward. We can see that, oh, if he just apologized for that thing he did, and if she just stopped doing that thing that she's doing, then they would be able to work stuff out. Things would be fine. But the problem is, we don't live on the outside of our spheres of relationships. We live on the inside. And inside that bubble of relationships, we are are so often paralyzed by our deep hurts, our frustrations, and our broken hearts. And sometimes it's just easier to sever the relationship completely. And so we go to our respective camps and we stay there, probably not even speaking to each other. And the advent of the Twilight book series gave us the perfect language to label this trend in human behavior. It's really profound, are you ready? The question is, are you team Edward or team what's-his-name? I don't know. I didn't read the books. Or in Hunger Games, this came up again. You were either team Gale or team Peta. And we do this in every area of our lives. We want to know, are you pro or anti? Are you right-wing or left-wing? Chipotle or Qdoba? I mean, these are the great human debates of our time. One of the most popular political survey websites is actually called isidewith.com, so you can figure out which side you land on. And you know this is true even in your personal circles of relationships. If two of your friends or two of your family members are in conflict with each other and you're not even involved, you often feel pressure to what? Take a side. Why? Because taking a side is easier than living in the mess that is the middle. And today we are concluding the series, No Greater Love, and we're going to see that God's love chooses again and again and again to live in the mess that is the middle. And we are going to see today that in an effort to give his followers a deeper understanding of God's love, Jesus paints us a picture of a very fractured, very polarized relationship. He tells the story of a father and a son, and things get so bad in their relationship that the son chooses to sever that relationship completely. So we're going to read in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. 
The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And now we might read that and go, huh, that's kind of weird. I didn't even know you could do that. I didn't know you could ask for your inheritance early. But this opening statement to Jesus' story was so scandalous to his audience. By claiming his inheritance early, this son was essentially saying to his father, I wish you were dead. And Jesus' audience would have been so offended at the thought and concluded, man, there is no coming back from this. We already know where this story is going. That relationship is over. And sadly, this is not just some random outlier example that Jesus picked. Just a few chapters earlier in Luke 12, a man came to Jesus and said, please serve as a judge between me and my brother. Make my brother share the inheritance with me fairly. And sadly, this is tale as old as time. So many families are fractured over inheritance issues. And on a level, it makes sense because you have a situation that can usually never be completely fair. And then it happens at a time when grief is thick in the air. And so misunderstandings and poorly chosen words are common and relationships can be damaged severely or even severed completely. But the grief in this story that Jesus is telling is a little bit different because the son's father hasn't died. His respect for his father has died. And so the son does the unthinkable in Jewish culture at the time. He demands his inheritance early. He abandons his responsibility. He abandons his family. And then we have the older son who chooses to stay at home and essentially says, I'm on team dad. And the younger son leaves and says, well, I'm on team me, myself, and I. And they part ways and the younger son goes off to enjoy his new inheritance. And in verse 13, we read, not long after that, the son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And so now not only has this son brought shame on himself and on his whole family by demanding his inheritance early, he then goes and spends every last dollar on wild living, which needs no explanation. And another wave of shame is piled on to this character of this young son. And Jesus' audience is probably thinking, ugh, the consequences for this kid are not going to be pretty. And they're right. In verse 14, we read, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And this very specific detail that Jesus adds would have made his listeners' stomachs turn because pigs were considered unclean in their culture. Even touching a pig was considered unclean to the Jews, but feeding them and longing to eat the slop that they were eating, Jesus here is painting the most shameful picture his audience can imagine. Jesus is making it painfully clear this man has truly hit rock bottom. And maybe you've been there, or maybe you're there right now, and you are sitting in shame. There is something or was something in your life that called to you. It whispered your name and said, listen, I will make you happy. And maybe it was something benign, like money or alcohol or popularity, or maybe it was even something good, like food or sex that God gave us as a gift. But like this son, you were drawn to the distortions of those good things. And maybe you made a choice or a series of choices and you were happy for a moment, but then you felt shame. But that voice continues to call to you. It lies even further and says, well, you just need a little bit more. A little bit more will make you happy. 
And then the voice adds this clever argument. Look at that shame that is burdening you. Come, let me help you numb that shame with a little more of me. But you and I both know that that thing never comes through on its promise. It never makes you happy. It makes you more and more miserable. And the shame grows and the pit gets deeper and deeper. And that is where this son is sitting in verse 17 when we read, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now, I imagine that many of the people listening in Jesus's audience must have thought, oh, wow, good luck with that, buddy. Like your father is going to even take you back as a servant after what you've done. But then we read later in verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And this is another scandalous detail in Jesus' story. In their culture, men of stature walked slowly and with stately dignity. They did not run. But in Jesus' story, the father runs to his son. And Jesus' audience probably gasped and started to murmur at this detail. And in verse 21, the son starts his apology. He says to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then Jesus gives us a crystal clear picture of God's love, of his relentless love for us. In verse 22, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, in this series, we have been looking at Jesus's command to us in John 13, 34, where Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so we have been looking at God's love and asking, how has he loved us? And then we've been asking God to work in us to teach us how to love other people the way that he has loved us. But some of you are listening, maybe you've been listening the whole series, maybe you're just tuning in today, and you've never really received God's love personally. Maybe you are still trying to earn it. And so maybe you're somebody who you wandered for a while, and now you're raising your kids, and you're stepping back into church, and you think, okay, I got to get this right now. No more of that wild stuff I did in my youth. Now it's time to get serious about this whole God thing and, and morality. Or you have found yourself in a broken place in life and you've gotten to the place where you're willing to admit this just isn't working. And so I'm going to try to clean my life up. Maybe I'll even become a religious person. I'm going to start exploring God. And if that's you, listen, that is not a bad thing because if your heart is turning toward God, then that is great. He is calling you. But you need to hear this very important detail in the story. In verses 18 and 19, the son plans and rehearses his apology to the father. And it's three parts. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So please just make me like one of your hired servants instead. But when it comes time for him to actually deliver the apology, he only gets out the first two of the three statements before the father cuts him off and interrupts him. In verse 21, the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But then the father interrupts him in verse 22 and says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Get this party started. My son is home. See, the father cuts him off because the father's love was ready to go. The father wasn't waiting for some full, perfect apology. He didn't demand that the son make himself worthy, clean himself up, that he go back and earn back the inheritance that he squandered. He doesn't even give him a chance to beg to be a servant. He says, you are my son, and I just want you to come home. That's what repentance is. It means to turn and go home. And so if you've never heard it before, or if you have and you need to hear it again, that is the love that God extends to you. And some of you have been running from him your whole life. And just so you know, his love will remain faithful. He is relentless, and he's calling you to come back home. He's waiting for you to realize that your soul is starving to death, and he's got a feast waiting for you. So what are you waiting for? His love for you is relentless, and all he calls you to do is turn to him and return home. He isn't standing there with his arms crossed and his brow furrowed waiting for you to earn his love. Some of you, that's the picture of God that you have. Maybe it's because of the parents you were raised by or just the distortion that you heard in your young years about who God is. That's not who God is. You cannot earn his love. He is a father who is scanning the horizon ready to sprint toward you. And now for those of you who are listening who have turned back to God, you've received that love and that forgiveness, I just want you to bask in the glow of that memory for just a moment. I want you to remember the sweetness of the grace that you felt when you chose to no longer live as a prodigal, but as a son, as a daughter, loved and forgiven. Because as Christians, I believe we should bear the unmistakable mark of Jesus' love that says, I will stand here unmoved with my arms open with love and grace toward others. I will be relentless in my love for those around me. There is nothing you could do to make me write you off completely. And sadly, I think, if anything, the opposite has become true in our Christian circles. We are so quick to close ourselves off. We protect ourselves and get nervous and weird and jumpy if someone enters our circle who clearly stands on the other side of whatever line it is in question. Now, does Jesus ask us to compromise on his truth? No. Jesus never once compromised on the truth. He held firm to the truth with complete perfection but he entered into the messy places of human conflict and said, I'm not going anywhere. I am relentless. And this is the message that Jesus drives home throughout Luke 15 by first saying, I am as relentless as a shepherd who will do anything to find his lost sheep. I am as relentless as a woman who searches for something that's precious to her. And I am as relentless as a father who's been completely scorned, insulted and abandoned by his son, but never, ever, ever gives up on him. He's saying, I am a father who scans the horizon daily with unwavering commitment to extend love and grace to you and to me, to the ones who have hurt him so deeply. Jesus says, my love is relentless. And in John 13, 34, he then turns to us as his followers and says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And you know, I think Jesus knew that I would struggle with this. I think he knew that this would be hard for us. And I believe that's why the parable doesn't end with, and then they had a big party, and they all lived happily ever after. Because in verse 25, the older son comes back on the scene. 
And we read, meanwhile, while the party's going on, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And in verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And the father goes out of the party and pleads with his older son. And the older son says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And I imagine myself as the older brother, and I know I would feel the exact same way. I mean, can you imagine if someone were to throw a huge party for that person that you're at odds with right now. And then they send you an invitation. You get it in the mail and you think unbelievable. They are throwing this huge celebration for that person. Would you go? I think it'd be hard for me to go. Or if I were to go, I would be tempted to march in and grab the microphone in the middle of the speeches and say, "Um, hello everyone, I just wanna set the record straight about so-and-so because he is not all that you think he is. She is not who she's all cracked up to be. Because like the older son, we don't like that God does this. The older son thought, I'm on team dad, and this jerk isn't. He made his choice, and now he's living with the consequences. And in verse 31, the father says, My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the father's response here stings my heart on a deep level because wrapped in his words, I hear this gentle question. If you had to choose between your experience of these last few years here at home with me and your brother's experience out in the world, which would you choose? Because the father is saying, don't you see that my desire is for all of my children to come home because this is where you belong? You are safe here. You are always well-fed and clothed and loved here. Your brother chose a way of life that stole years from him and caused him so much pain. But the important thing is that he's home now, and that calls for a celebration, and you're invited. Listen, if you have come home by the grace of Jesus, you are both the younger son and the older son in this story. And the older son gets hung up on the idea that it's just not fair. And you know what? It's not. It's not fair. But praise God, his love for us is not fair. It's relentlessly unfair. As Yancey puts it, grace is scandalous. He wants his children to be known for a love that never gives up, never writes anyone off, and never completely severs the relationship. And here's how I know that's what Jesus wants. He tells all three of these parables to a unique mashup of two very polarized groups of people. Right at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners had all gathered around Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law were also there, and they muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Modern day translation of what they're saying, Ugh, it looks like Jesus is on team sinners. 
And Jesus presents these three parables when he's standing right in the middle of these two groups of people, right in the middle of a cultural biodome of two groups that absolutely hated each other, so much so that they tried to never interact with each other as much as possible. And that is no accident. Jesus wanted to make himself perfectly clear. My love is not like human love. It isn't conditional on good behavior. You cannot earn it. It can't be shrugged off or shaken. I'm not afraid of the mess that is the middle. And when Jesus went to the cross and took our punishment on himself, it was the fulfillment of the love that God has always had for his people. God said of himself through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. God's love is relentless and he is never going to give up on you. And he calls you and he calls me to never give up on anyone. And so as we close today and as we close out this whole series, I have to ask you, who is it? Who is that family member that you have not spoken to in years? Which relationship are you currently working on saving, but honestly, you daydream about how much easier life would be if you just walked away and got a fresh start? Or maybe it's a group of people with a certain agenda, fighting for a certain issue, and man, they just make your blood boil. The thought of being in the same room feels impossible to you. Because the truth is that person, that group of people, is loved by God and he is drawing their hearts to himself with loving kindness. And he wants you and he wants me to stand next to him so that we can scan the horizon together and then get the party ready to go for the reunion. But it will be messy. And it is only possible, I repeat, this is only possible if you and I are living daily in the full awareness of our need for and acceptance of the gospel. Yancey says it this way, only by living in the stream of God's grace will I find the strength to respond with grace toward others. A ceasefire between human beings depends upon a ceasefire with God. So as we close, will you pray with me? God, we are so, so grateful for your love and all that you've taught us throughout this series about the beautiful facets of your love for us. And we know, God, that we have only scratched the surface of understanding the depths and breadth of your love for us. And so we ask you to continue on this journey with us. Show us through your word all the ways that you love us and then instruct us, shape our hearts so that we can better love the world around us. We are so, so grateful, Jesus, for the price that you paid on the cross to make it possible for us to repent, to turn and come back home. Thank you that your love, God, embraces us like a father who's not expecting us to earn it, but offers it freely as a gift of grace. We are so, so grateful, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.